Okay, uh, tonight's topic is one that is, of course, uh, very much on everybody's mind because of this terrible matzah that we continue to be in, and in particular events of this past week. And it's also very much relevant to this week's Parsha. Uh, this week's Parsha, in some ways, maybe more than any other Parsha, is a Parsha of war. Uh, we spoke a few weeks ago, Parsha's Lech Lecha has major implications for the sugi of war. But Parsha's Vayishlach comes at it from two directions. Uh, comes at it from the involvement of Yaakov in the preparation for war, and there are certain principles that we can derive from there. And there is also the very significant episode of Shem and Shimon and Levi's involvement in killing the people of Shem and the reaction to their attack on Dina. And there is much debate as to what exactly can be derived from there about principles of war, especially because there's some ambiguity about whether what they did was justified or not. And that leaves a lot to be debated and to be interpreted about what exactly is acceptable and not acceptable and what kind of considerations are relevant. So tonight, to focus on this one very significant aspect of it, but a big part of it is that the context of war is highly relevant to understanding it and the fact that war has its own rules and its own considerations is certainly going to impact the discussion because the sugi by itself is clearly complicated by that factor. So we have, on the one hand, a major imperative of pigeon shvuyim. The Gemara in Baba Basra and Davches talks about pigeon shvuyim as a incredible act of chesed and staka, one that shoots right up to the top of the list. And there's actually a fascinating comment of Rebbeinu Bachia in his Sefer Karakemach, where he notes the fact that Akadosh Baruch Hu describes himself in the Osiris Dibros as the one who took Bnei Yisrael out of Mitzrayim. And the emphasis on that, even more than being the one who created the earth, Rebbeinu Bachia notes, a good friend of Bedevi Nachbar pointed out to me this, Rebbeinu Bachia, that the purpose of focusing on that is to emphasize the Kodesh Baruch Hu's role as a Podesh Vuyim, as somebody who takes people out of captivity and for the purpose of instilling a responsibility from the perspective of Halach de Bedrachav. And that just as the Kodesh Baruch Hu does that, so, so too, this is also a mission of ours. And that is consistent with the notion that Kaddish Baruch Hu models chesed for us and that the mitzvah of halach bedrachav, as interpreted by Chazal, often points to themes of chesed. But here, especially, if we do understand that Pidgin Shvuyim is one of the most extreme acts of chesed that can be done, so then, for sure, the notion that 
imitating a Kaddish Baruch Hu in that way specifically is very much a kiyum of that. And yet, at the same time, so the Gemara in Masachas Gittin, the Mishnah Gittin, and the Gemara commenting on that Mishnah has a significant limitation. And the nature of that limitation is something that we have to consider and figure out to what extent, if any, does it apply nowadays and in the context of the negotiations that we've seen and the various complexities that are connected with it. So I'd just like to frame the issue to begin with from a certain philosophical perspective and discussed in my business class in Sims, talking about some of the general philosophical considerations of morality and happened to use over the years the topic of negotiating with terrorists for the release of hostages as an example of how various philosophical approaches can be applied. And I think it's helpful a little bit to mention that framing and then to consider how some of the sources, many of which I'm sure you've heard by now, there's been so many discussions about this, but how they can perhaps be understood within that framework. So when we talk about morality and the foundations of morality, so there are often two schools of thought that are portrayed. And on the one hand is what we call formalism, and on the other hand it's known as consequentialism. They have other names as well, but those are two of the common titles. The idea being that a consequentialist who's looking to be moral, both of these people are looking to be moral, looking to do good for the world, but the question is how do they approach it? So the consequentialist will make his decisions based on what will bring about good results. And even if it's behavior that may otherwise seem immoral or ill-advised, but if in this situation it can be interpreted in a way that it will bring about benefits, how exactly you measure that is, of course, a very significant discussion of itself, but however we determine what a good result is, if you could bring about this good result, so then that would dictate the course. And that's what's known as the ends justify the means. That to bring about a good result is going to be our main priority, and then we're less concerned about what comes in between now and getting that result. While a formalist would take the opposite position and say that the ends don't justify the means, and assume that one has to live life by rules, and follow those rules consistently. So to give an example, it's often used, say, the question of lying. So the formalist will never lie because lying is morally wrong. While the consequentialist will in general not lie because usually deceiving people correlates with causing them harm. But there are situations where there won't be that correlation necessarily and it'll be better for people if the people you're dealing with, if you're not necessarily straightforward with them. And in those situations, so then lying would be the right thing to do. So on the one hand, you'd have that perspective, while a extreme formalist, like a Kantian formalist, wouldn't lie even to save someone's life. A very striking formulation. So those can be presented as two extremes. The ends justify the means, the ends don't justify the means. Uh, for us, 
meaning those in the halachic system, and I think also the average person who you talk to, whether or not they're being guided by halacha specifically, we find that we're probably living by a mixture of approaches depending on a number of variables, and that for some situations we seem to take more consequentialist positions, and for other situations we take more formalist positions. But uh, a part of it is to understand, think, that the notion of formalism itself can actually be subdivided into two categories. That the reason why one may say, I'm going to absolutely stick by a moral rule policy, could come from two different directions. So why would it be that somebody would take such an absolute position? So one type of formalist is really what you would call a long-term consequentialist, meaning that he's also interested in consequences. He's not uninterested in what's going to happen as far as guiding his moral decisions. It's just that he's looking at a broader picture and concerned with the possibility that if one breaks a rule now, so then that could lead to all kinds of bigger problems, whether it's because that will bring a whole atmosphere of everyone making their own decisions all the time and then society will fall apart, or whether more specific reasons within each case why allowing that is going to be bad in the long run. But essentially, that's where it comes from, that even though it manifests itself as rules and as absolutes, but it really is also directed by a type of consequentialism, by worrying about the results, just looking at it in the long term, rather than the immediate situation in front of us. So you could call that a long-term consequentialist formalism. That's a very long title, so just uh, thinking now how to revise it, maybe to a little bit of a shorter title. You could also call it essentially a, a policy formalist, meaning that they're formalist as a matter of policy, that it's not good protocol to allow breaching the rules because of all kinds of things that go wrong, just like we have a policy, if I let you do this, I have to let everyone do this, however you want to form it, so, uh, whatever you want to say, so that was probably a good way to describe it, uh, a policy formalist. And then there's another kind of formalist who's really not interested in consequences at all. Uh, there could be a number of reasons for this. It could be because, especially coming, let's say, from a religious perspective, could say that you just don't think consequences are your responsibility or your authority. Uh, Kaddish Baruch Hu runs the world, and he's going to decide what happens. And he didn't ask us to bring about results. He asked us to follow his rules. And again, there are many different reasons why one might take this position. We may feel that it's not our responsibility to bring consequences. We may feel it's not within our authority to focus on consequences. Or that it's simply not practical because we can't always predict the consequences. And we know of the law of unintended consequences, which is often the case. And it turns out that that's the direction things go in. So perhaps for any number of reasons, this kind of formalist is simply not focused on consequences at all in the short term or in the long term, but rather understands that his job is to honor values. So you live a life by values and understand that that's your responsibility. And hopefully most of the time it will correlate to good consequences, but that's not your job. So 
In this case, you don't lie because you have a value of honesty that you live by, and you give tzedakah and help people because you have a value of chesed and a value of generosity. And these are all values that you honor with your existence. But the consequences are not where it comes from. The consequences hopefully will be good, but that's up to God. But your plan, your mahalach, is to honor these values, and that's how you live your life. So we could call this type of formalist a values formalist. So it gives us really three philosophies here. A consequentialist, a policy formalist, and a values formalist. So far, so good. Everybody following? Makes sense? So, to illustrate the point, I've often brought up this example of attitudes towards negotiating with terrorists. So, let's say a terrorist is holding hostages, and the question is posed, so should you negotiate with them or not? So, here, one could apply three different approaches based on these three schools of thought that the consequentialist will perhaps negotiate with a hostage, negotiate with a terrorist, because he's focused on the immediate benefits. And right now, there is a hostage who's suffering and a danger to that hostage. So right now, the mission of the moment is to have him released, and that's what will bring about the best result, and therefore, that's the plan. While both types of formalists would likely not want to negotiate with the terrorists, but for two different reasons. So the policy formalist won't negotiate with terrorists because even though, yes, he has Rahmanus and is deeply concerned about the terrorist holding the hostage that he has right now, but he is concerned also that should he allow such negotiations, so then the long-term result is going to be many more hostages taken and a much worse situation for people overall. And therefore, it's not going to be considered a wise plan. While the values formalist will decline to negotiate for a different reason. And the values formalist may say, I don't know what's going to happen short-term, long-term. That's not necessarily what I'm focused on. But I do know that terrorism is evil. And to negotiate is to validate that evil and is to be a partner to that evil and to give it credibility. So therefore, even if it would be totally guaranteed that it wouldn't make the situation worse in the short term or the long term, the values formalist may say this is simply something that we don't do because that compromises their values to such an extent here. Terrorism is the complete opposite of any kind of morality as far as you can get from any kind of a moral system. And to negotiate with that is going to be itself an act of endorsement of such evil. And therefore, for that reason, it's not something the values formalist will consider. So all of this is present in an intensified form in the present situation of this past week, this past weeks, but this past week in particular, where there have been these negotiations and these executions of the plan. And we'll keep that in mind while considering some of the discussions and come back perhaps to how it applies to that framework. So 
given that Pidgin Shvuyim is held up as such a mitzvah and as such a chesed and all of that is understandable, so that is still nonetheless restrained quite a bit by a Mishnah in Mesachas Gittin and the Gemara taking it further, that the Mishnah in Gittin and Daf Bem and Aleph says that in Poden that we don't redeem captives for more than they're worth. Now that's a very mysterious term, so I have to see if we have a way of defining that, but whatever it means, perhaps there are some situations where it seems like it's clearly on one side of this equation. So when the price is too high, so then as Ashav as Pigeon Shvuyim is, we still don't do it. And that's Mipnei Tikkun Olam, says the Mishnah. And then the Mishnah actually says a more striking din. And that's maybe also something to keep in mind just in terms of how much this is something that we even factor in. It's very uh, noteworthy because the second part of the Mishnah is really a much bigger Chiddush and is not invoked as much in the contemporary discourse, even though it's just as relevant as far as what it describes. But the second part of the Mishnah is that we don't help in trying to help them escape. And why not? So, that the Gemara is going to explain. Mishnah concludes that So, the Gemara expands on this discussion in the Mishnah, and talking about this first part, about the pigeon shvuyim limitations, the Gemara asks, so when we talk about tikkun olam, what do we mean? So to say that there's a tikkun olam consideration not to redeem captives for too much, what is that about? So one opinion is mishum duchka to sibura. So that, as Rashi explains, that the price is just going to become overwhelming. And that's not something that we impose on the seaboard. We have to apparently balance that out with other considerations. Or is it Mishum that we're worried that once this happens, once we start going down this road, so they're going to be incentivized to take more? Which here we see this is already evocative of what we described as the policy formalist that here, yes, we feel terrible for the shvuyim that are there, but if we start going down this route, so then we're going to have many, many more hostages, and ultimately that's not what we can tolerate. So the Gemara says that there are various applications in Afghaminas. The Gemara talks about a case where this happened, and maybe it's not a riot, because maybe this is a situation that Chazal didn't uh, approve of. Uh, and the Gemara goes on to discuss the idea of not chasing away, not helping the Shluyim be chased away, being escaped, so not helping them in that process. And again, the more striking line, and there, the idea seems to be that you may end up causing greater tsar for the existing prisoners. Now they're going to take revenge on the prisoners who are left if you help one escape. So the Gemara says if that's the reason, so then maybe an afkamina would be if there is only one. So then you don't necessarily have to worry about the impact on those who are left. 
and as far as the Pishon Shvuyim part, so if the concern is Duchka Tzibura, so then let's say you have money that's not coming from the Tzibura, but let's say there's a rich relative who wants to pay, so then that wouldn't necessarily impose the issue of monetary burden on the Tzibura, but may still provoke the other consideration that there's going to be an increase an encouragement of this kind of strategy, and therefore that's enough reason not to do it. So here, as far as how this plays out, so the Rambam in Hilchus Matnas so he records this din, this is in Chesri Beis Matnas that we're not podeshvuim Yisrael Tmeim because of Tikkun Olam, why? So that means that we don't want them to do more. We don't want there to be an increase in this and to encourage it. And he also brings the din there of Why? That we're afraid that the other understanding that if we are likely to try to make efforts to free them, so then their time in captivity is going to be worse because the guards and the kidnappers are going to increase the attention on them and decrease the comfort that they have, decrease the proper treatment they have. So therefore, for that reason, we don't do that. And again, we do do that. So how exactly that has so much less of a role in our contemporary analysis is a fascinating point. But the first part about Yosemite Day Demeyen gets much more attention. And it seems like the way the Rambam is understanding in the Shulchan Aruch as well, Yeridei Ereshen and Beis, is that the dominant reason is that we're worried about encouraging further kidnappings. So that is important on a couple of levels, just the whole idea that there is a psak on this question, the analysis of the Gemara and Rishonim and the Shulchan Aruch taking a side on the issue. So what's the impact of a psak in this issue? Because we already know that there are these considerations that are present. So when the situation happens, we recognize that it potentially poses a burden on the seaboard, and the idea that we might encourage further kidnappings. So these are aspects that are self-evident. So when we ask the Paskin on this, it doesn't mean that we're recognizing one element being there and not the other. They're both there as a matter of Metzius. So the way the Gemara is explaining it, is that if we take one side or the other, it means that's the nature of the Takana, and there's going to be Nafkaminas based on that. So as we noted, that if we say that it's because of Duchet de Sibura, so it means that therefore, should there be a rich relative who's not going to have to come to the Tzibura to pay for it, so then that would be excluded from this Tikkun Olam Takana that was made not to be Podeshvuyim in that situation. But what if, uh, but apparently that's not how we maintain, apparently we maintain that the issue is to encourage, we're afraid that we may encourage further kidnappings, and that's what's dominating the policy. But what would have been, just as a thought exercise here for a second, so what would have been if we would have passed in the other way? So then it seems to be that, yes, the concern of possible 
hostage taking in the future is there, but that's not enough to outweigh it. So, for example, that nafkamina, that if you have a rich person who's part of the family who's willing to do it, so in addition to allowing that as a nafkamina, the implications of that nafkamina is that essentially it's a de-emphasis of formalism in this case, and a validation of a consequentialist approach here, because that would mean that despite the fact that it's a truism, that you could encourage more terrorism by negotiating here, but then the halacha is telling you not to focus on that. It's telling you to focus on a different factor, and if that factor wasn't a concern, so then apparently you would say, go for it, and that would have been the implication of that nafkamina that the Gemara talks about in terms of if there is a wealthy relative. So what's also dealt with in the Rishonim is that a little bit later in Gittin and Daphne and Chesim and Aleph, so there is a Gemara, which we're familiar with from the Tisha B'Av Gemaras. So uh, now all of the Tisha B'Av Gemaras feel relevant, uh, unfortunately. But uh, here, more specifically, so in the context of those very difficult Gemaras, so the Gemara tells a story about Bishuv and Hanania, who encountered a young boy who was imprisoned, and he was uh, very appealing, and he realized also that he is somebody who has a tremendous future, and he believed he's going to be a Merahara, be So he says, I'm not going to leave from here until I do whatever it takes in order to redeem him. So that seems to contradict the explicit Mishnah. It seems to go against the idea that's not disputed in the Mishnah. The Mishnah doesn't have a machlokas about this. It says straight out, And here he's saying, whatever the Dhamim are, so he was ready to do it, and this was Shmuel ben Elisha. So Tosus has two approaches as to what it is that distinguishes this case. And one is that Sarkanas Nefachos maybe is different. So that is an issue other Rishonim dispute, and it's also hard to sustain because it's very difficult to maintain that there was ever a situation of captivity that wasn't Pikuach Nefesh. So the notion that the Mishnah was talking Stam, oh, and one of these captive situations where there's no risk to life, and this is where it's different. So that's very hard to imagine. And that's why some Rishonim, among other reasons, dispute this as a possible approach. So then the Gemara also says that Muflog, the Tosus rather, also says that maybe Muflog B'chachma shiny, and that here, this person, this young boy, had such potential to be a Merah Harab Yisrael, so therefore that creates a different kind of justification. So that seems to also create perhaps a consequentialist motive, so to speak, that there's going to be a benefit to this situation that's greater than average. So even though normally <clears throat> we would have a certain limit to how much the consequentialist analysis would take us, but here, if we're increasing the benefit, so then to such an extent, maybe that shifts the maybe that shifts the consideration. Tosis on Dafmim Hey has another answer here, and what that answer means is possibly very significant. Tosis says that maybe Bishas Khurban Habayas 
lo shayich That maybe when it comes to the context over there, that it was the churban, so then we don't have to be concerned about the possible implications. So why not? So that itself is important to try to figure out what that answer could mean. So there are different ways to interpret it. Rav Asher Weiss in his shiurim about this, uh, he suggested one approach which would be highly relevant, even though it's not the approach that the Mepharshim necessarily take, but that you could have read that to mean that at a time when there is a particular burden on all of Klai Yisrael, and that the morale of all of Klai Yisrael is particularly troubled because of a disaster that everyone is dealing with, so then the need for the morale boost is perhaps more significant. So if that's the interpretation, that would probably have significant nafkaminas for the current matzav and probably would have a big impact. It's a question if that's what it means, though, as he and others note, that the Meiri comments, for example, that what that answer means is that when just everyone is totally devastated and destroyed, so the concern that the situation is going to get worse is just not particularly relevant. And so it comes at it from a different direction that we're not necessarily going to be able to, or we don't necessarily have a reason to factor that in as much when there's such devastation everywhere and things essentially have gotten so bad already that the likelihood that you're adding to the motivation to create further terrorist activities is very unlikely. So the idea that Tosfus has that a special Tamar Chacham could indeed be the subject of such redemption, so the Shulchan Aruch over there does paskin that a Tamar Chacham or a Tamar Charif, so we are poed to him even more than he is, even more than he is worth, whatever that means. And the other terrets of Sarkana, as we noted, so that seems difficult misvar, seems difficult according to other Rishonim, so that doesn't make it into Shulchan Aruch. So the answer that does seem to make it into Halacha from that stira is the idea that there may be certain high-worth individuals who perhaps could be exempt from this rule and we would be poed to them. So that is what comes out from that level of psak in the later generations. So there are a number of chuvas about this, where uh, in the kind of the era surrounding the time of the Shulchan Aruch, before a little after, so many of the poskim who talked about situations where people were in captivity and various scenarios surrounded that, and the question came up about being posed to them. So for the most part in that era, there's a chuva of the Maram Lublin and the chuva from the Knesset Yechezkel and others, and they all in that era take the consistent position that we are not poda yosur michdei demehem. So that seems to have emerged as the dominant consideration in that shlav of psak. And what's very well known is the case of the Marami Rutenberg, one of the greatest of the Ashkenazi Rishonim, and it was the rabbi of the Mordechai, and the Hagos Maimini, and the Rush. And he was in captivity for many years until he died. 
and they tried to redeem him, and his students raised the money to do it, and he refused. He refused to allow himself to be redeemed. And his understanding, despite the fact that it seems to be against this approach, that if somebody is a Tamar Chacha Muflog, so he certainly fit that category. He was the Gadol Hador, the Gadoli Harishonim, so it's hard to imagine it's applying to anybody if not to him. But apparently he understood, and you have to think about the type of, of objective thinking it takes to come to this, the type of be able to remove yourself from the bias, such a, a simon of really tremendous Midas Ames, to be able to take on a burden, despite the fact that it would have been so easy to justify otherwise, but that the factor of here, the policy consequentialism, is also greater because being that he was the leader of Klal Yisrael and he was recognized apparently by his captors as somebody who had high significance. So if he would allow that plan to be rewarded, that taking him means they get paid off. So that would itself have terrible consequentialist long-term consequentialist effects, we call policy formalist effects, and therefore he couldn't allow it. And this is the point that's also brought by the Marshal, the Marshal in his Yamshul Shlomo and Gittin, he discusses the fact that it seems like such a Pella that how could the Marshal Rutenberg not have allowed himself to be viewed in this category of the Gadol Hador, and apparently this was the consideration that it would itself cause bigger problems. So that was the attitude for a certain level of history, a certain stage in history, that there was indeed this understanding of not to, to stick to this din of the Gemara, that not to be poda yosem And it was applied even despite the potential of exceptions that the Rishonim had yielded, such as Great Talmud Chacham. The question of what does Yosem Echdei mean is not really clear and is not spelled out. And that would also seem to have great implications for the situation now where we're not dealing in money to begin with. So if we're not dealing with money, so then, okay, the whole question of Duch de Sibura may not necessarily come into consideration, but that's not the dominant factor anyway. But the factor of encouraging more kidnappings. So I would imagine that, even though this is a, somewhat of a discussion, that the idea of Yosemite de Mayhem would be measured by whatever makes it worth their while. That the whole point is that we don't want it to be a profitable endeavor for them to kidnap people and then realize that this is something that is beneficial. So however you measure it, whether you measure it in trade for criminals or you measure it in monetary assessment, but whatever is going to make it worth their while to keep on doing this is going to be a Yosem Mechdei Demeyem, we think, because Zil Basar Taima, that's the issue. So even if you were to use some other way of assessing, but theoretically it could be a profitable business, even if you were just charging day to mayhem. So perhaps what's really the factor here is what's going to make it not be incentivized. So on the one hand, you have this whole history. Uh, more recently, though, the 
attitude has been to be poda, and in the context of milchama, so really there's a whole other level of complication. So here there's a number of things to consider. So in terms of the current matzav and the situation that's going on now, and I want to emphasize here, I really should have emphasized at the beginning, that the purpose of this whole discussion that we're having tonight is not to try to judge in any sense of the word, because we are very far from the position that would be necessary to judge the decisions of the Israeli government, and we certainly don't begin to know all of the factors, and even if we did, we don't have the capacity to assess all the factors, so none of this discussion is intended to paskin or to cast judgment on the current situation, but just to try to understand it. So here, the question is not only on the issue of the din in the Mishnah of but here, since we're not talking about money at all, but we're talking about freeing criminals, so what about the sarkana that is involved in that? So what about the fact that you are provoking a serious sarkana by releasing criminals into the environment? And that's beyond description. So we know that in the current situation that the mastermind of this atrocity was released in the previous prisoner swap. So that's really perhaps the dominant consideration now. So whether or not the considerations of Yosemite Dei Dimeyim specifically are still relevant. It's more the sakana that emerges from what it is that is being given in return. So this is a discussion as well. It's a sefer called Chuvus Prishalom, which was written by Pinchas Shapiro, who has an analysis where he discusses the fact that we know we have the din of Yeharva Yavor in general, which means that I'm not allowed to save someone's life by murdering an innocent person. So if that's what it costs in order to rescue somebody, I have to go kill somebody who is not the kidnapper and is not guilty in any way, so then I'm not allowed to do that. So Naniach, that if that was the situation... So then it would be off the table. If somebody would say, okay, I'll free, this, I'll free this captive if what you have to do for me in return is you have to go up to some innocent person and shoot him. So for sure, that would seem to be off the table because that would be a situation of I'm not allowed to kill someone else in order to rescue another person. So should freeing these terrorists, freeing these convicts, would that be in the same category? So he discusses there that uh, the Ritva, in his commentary to Psachim, so the Ritva writes that if somebody asks you to give them the Kli Mulchama that they use to hurt other people, to kill other people, and that's what it takes in order to save someone's life, so you're not allowed to do that either. You're not allowed to hand over the tools of murder. So why is that? So it could be because that's considered to be Abizrahu, that that's considered to be part of the broader rubric 
of Ritzicha, or uh, it could be because that maybe in fact that is. He quotes some Makaros such as the Targumenus and Benazio on the Pasuk of Leitzertzach, which has a interesting translation, Tarek Bionison writes that it's, well, you should not be involved in killing, you should not also partner with uh, those who kill. And the Ibn Ezra goes further than this, and he says that even somebody who could save someone by giving some information and doesn't is also included in the Isra of Ritzicha. So essentially what he's trying to develop here is that Ritzicha, just like I can't kill an innocent person to rescue a captive, so maybe handing over the tools of murder is essentially under the same category, and maybe because it's literally included in Los Erzach. Now, just to focus on that for a second in our terminology, that the idea of Los Erzach, according to these interpretations, would be highlighted as here coming from a consequentialist aspect even though Osirtzach itself is really the epitome of formalism because of its Harivayava rule, but it's defined essentially by the consequences that it brings about, so it's really a combination of both. But since the issue of Ritzicha is essentially starting from the fact that it causes terrible consequences, so this Targmionison and this Ibn Ezra are saying that anything that brings about that consequence is really defined as included in this is, sir, and you wouldn't have to be actually pulling the trigger in order to violate that. Uh, it could also be, as he discusses there, that seeing this in this context maybe goes to the question of why is it Yahari Vayavar? So that itself is a lengthy discussion. It's probably going to take us a long time to go into the details, but the Gemara's Svara of my chazis, how do you come to the conclusion that your blood is redder than his blood? So that itself is also an expression of perhaps one type of formalism or the other, right? either that it's simply unknowable, that no one is any more valuable than anyone else, so in docha nefesh, nefesh, essentially a value statement, or it could also be a policy formula statement saying that we just can never go down that road of trying to measure one life for another because that's going to open up all kinds of doors that are going to be terrible for society to let us start making that evaluation. So understanding exactly what the nature of that din is, and there's a lot of discussion about this because it seems like even in circumstances where you could tell, so for example, the Yerushalmi has the case that if a bunch of marauders come to the city and say, give us one of the city and so we can kill him, or we'll kill everybody. So there, it's impossible to say that the math doesn't work. You can tell that this person was going to be killed anyway. So clearly, the question of how could you know whose blood is redder, here you know that you could save the whole group by turning over this one person who was included in that. So there's no svara to say that you're making things worse. But still, apparently, it's an absolute formalist principle, and we just can't let you go there. So that idea itself gives us some kind of insight into what kind of an issue we're dealing with, and it could be that figuring out the nature of why that's true is also relevant to understanding broader considerations where you're not actually doing the killing yourself, but you're creating the sakana. 
So here uh, he discusses there then the Chuvas Marib Milev, uh, that's quoted by Ravaja. Ravaja has a Chuva where he talks about this whole question specifically about negotiating for hostages. He was talking about the Entebbe situation where he was involved in the whole deal about this at the request of the Prime Minister, uh, together with a number of other great gedolim at that time, and they were inclined to allow it, to allow the negotiating, and before they had to issue that ruling, so then the rescue mission in which Yoni Netanyahu died, that rescue mission on uh, July 4th, 1976, took place before they had to actually issue the ruling, so they didn't end up having to negotiate, and they were very happy that despite the the loss of four Jews, but they didn't have to actually create a sakana for the future, so they were relieved about that, but they were inclined to say that it should be mutter. So the idea is uh, perhaps based on the Marie ben Leiv, that what if you don't know necessarily that this is going to bring about death in the future, we're concerned that it will, but... We don't necessarily know that that's the case. So then maybe we should allow a suffix sarkana for the future in order to accomplish a vadai hatsala now. And the truth is, is uh, Rashi in, in Chumash, the whole story with Yehuda, where he's talking about trying to arrange his negotiating over there, that Rashi quotes from the Tanhuma that there is such a svara that of ein tafik motzimidei vadai that maybe we should go for the definite issue now and not necessarily worry about what's going to happen in the future. So that was the position of the Marib ben Leiv. Uh, the Radbaz disagrees, and or seems to disagree, that uh, the Radbaz says that it's prohibited to enter into even a tafik sarkana in order to save others. So, there is a discussion had a paskin on this, so Rebbe seems to understand that the Rabaz was rejected the halacha, that we do allow entering into a suffix sakana in order to save others. But in this discussion in the Brishalom, so he argues that you have to make a big filuk between endangering yourself to save others, where there there is room to allow it, while creating a sakana for others would have to be a very different story. So that's itself an interesting distinction to consider, whether that's the case or not. But ultimately, the way his shuva goes is that he pits this as two conflicts, two values in conflict. On the one hand, the question of, do we say, and therefore we should prioritize saving a life right now? Or do we say that that because of the various factors here, so all we can do is just withdraw our hands from the situation and not take an action that could lead to the death of people in the future, even though that would mean that we're essentially, unfortunately, condemning the hostages. So here, those two considerations really are coming from different places on our whole rubric of different philosophies. Because the idea of ain't suffic motsumide vadai essentially is a consequentialist kind of approach. And basically saying, okay, so let's weigh up the consequences and say, okay, if we know that there's a definite benefit weighed against a questionable loss, so then we should give more weight to the definite 
benefit. And that whole process of a cost-benefit analysis is essentially a consequentialist way of looking at things. While the idea of Sheva Tasa Adif, in a sense, is really the definition of formalism. It could be a values formalism, saying that I'm simply not allowed to take action here, even though it could lead to worse consequences, but my job is to stick to my values of not killing people. Or it could be an expression of policy formalism, saying that just the risk of unintended consequences are so high with this mixture of factors here that this is not a path I can take. So it's perhaps valuable to recognize that this idea of the different svaras that are being pitted against each other here are really coming from completely different attitudes, completely different philosophical schools of what exactly is the proper approach here. And that's perhaps relevant also. So a highly relevant question to the whole issue is how much and to what extent should the factor of war really change the whole dynamic here? So that tshuva was really dealing without entering into any consideration beyond the normal Yavor Pikuach Nefesh considerations, but we do work off the assumption that war does very much change the dynamic, and that's a theme in this week's Parsha. So, for example, the whole engagement in which Shimon and Levi kill the people of Shechem, and the whole question of how to look at that, and as I alluded to in the beginning, it's highly complicated because one of the major issues is not clear from the Torah who is right on this issue. Or enough, there's enough ambiguity that the Rishonim can argue about it because the Rambam in Mishnah Torah gives a justification for what Shimon and Levi did, uh, understanding it under the rubric of Din. And on the other hand, the Ramban disagrees, and a big part of his disagreement is that the context seems like they were wrong, that Yaakov criticizes them so harshly and comes back and criticizes them again in Parshas Vayichi. So it seems like this is not the way to go. So it's hard to know how to learn a lesson from that whole episode, even though it's highly significant for a lot of these questions. But the morale of Prague writes that the justification for what Shimon and Levi did, he seems to be working off the premise that it was justified, was that it was a act of war, essentially, and that they were coming as two group entities, and that the family of Yaakov, the Jewish army, felt that there was a threat from this collective. He doesn't spell this out, but I think this is the way later Svarim understand what the Maral is getting at, that especially such a, a bold attack from the individual Shechem Andina was something which was likely to create such a provocation that if they're ready to do that, so then it must be that there really is a, a threat here and that they had to engage in such a fashion. It really makes the story even all the more resonant, because here, you know, the Torah is talking about essentially this act of rape, which was considered to be so provocative and so hostile, and now we see that that was the tool also of so much of what happened in Sinus Torah, and, but it also comes to define, to a certain extent, the nature of the threat and the degree of cruelty and disregard that's involved, and therefore what kind of a reaction may be necessary. So the notion that war creates a whole different set of rules is a part of the analysis of this week's parsha. 
And that probably is relevant here also. The question is, though, in what direction is it relevant? Because there are arguments, lakan or lakan, and that probably also is an element that complicates the situation. And to reiterate what we said before, is not our position or our job at all to judge the current decision, but just to give some aspect of perspective on it. So on the one hand, Rav Shechter Shlita writes in the Ikve Hatzon that whatever considerations you have about Pidgin Shuyim, and even separate from the Mishnah saying when not to do it, but the Mitzvah Bechlal thought it just doesn't really apply when it's in the context of war, because whatever you're going to be giving to the kidnappers, and that would be a, true even if it was money, but certainly if it's personnel, is going to be strengthening their effort against you. So it's going to be that which undermines the whole war effort. So for that reason, the whole thing should be off the table, he understood. On the other hand, the same reality has also led to other analysis in the opposite direction. So Shal Yisraeli and others have taken the position that a part of the war effort is the morale of the soldiers, and it's so crucial that you keep the morale high, and that we've seen many examples of. So the knowledge that the army will do whatever it takes in order to value each and every one of them and be ready to take great steps to rescue a soldier who gets taken into captivity has a big effect on the morale of the soldiers, and therefore that's a reason to go in the completely opposite direction. So all of that creates enough confusion here, creates enough ambiguity to allow for as far as in competing directions and decisions in competing directions. But I think what's also relevant then to the whole war consideration is the fact that we know that the rules are different in war. That's the morale's point, and the morale happens to also make that comment in the beginning of the Parsha when Yaakov prepares himself for war with Esav, and the idea that that he was worried both about killing and about, about being killed and about killing others, and in that context, the morale comments also that nonetheless it would be legitimate for him to go after all of Esav's group because it would be considered warfare. But notably, nonetheless, he's still worried about it because the justification does not exempt one from feeling the anguish of having to kill. That's part of the Jewish sensitivity. And that's part of the sensitivity that continues at Yom But they are meant to both coexist, and that's also a theme elsewhere in the parsha that the need to take aggressive, harsh action sometimes can coexist with a sense of awareness of what's lost, and one does not, cannot be allowed to get in the way of the other. But in any, in any event, the idea that war is different is already a, a theme. So why is war different? So one reason is perhaps because of the collective nature. We then see people not as individuals, but as part of groups. And the considerations of Pikuach Nefesh and Rodef and everything that comes along with that are applied to that framework. But perhaps there's also a notion that it is legitimate to make consequentialist decisions much more when you're dealing on a national scale. That an individual could have a rule, for example, Yavor, a formalist rule, because there are things that are worth being most beneficial for as an individual, that we don't say that you save your life at all costs, because there is a 
there is a basic red line of certain absolute principles, certain absolute formalist principles, and that's what Yaharivayava represents, that the individual is bound by those formalist principles, these absolute never do these things. But when it comes to a national entity, essentially, especially fighting an existential war, so it becomes much more reasonable and likely that consequentialist factors should be guiding what's going on, because now you're dealing with all of society fighting for its survival, especially when you're dealing with an existential defensive war. So we do have to make considerations that will allow for the nation to continue to survive. So the idea that we see things more consequentially and there's more legitimacy to making decisions based on whatever will bring about the good consequence seems to be perhaps much more justifiable and requires looking at it through that lens. So that also still yields all kinds of possibilities as to where that decision will land, but that's probably an important part of why things are different. So we've gone way over time, but just to kind of plug this back into how we started. So the current situation, again, without judging, but just looking at the framework, so the decision to trade convicted criminals for these hostages, for some of the hostages, so how exactly does that fit into any of the frameworks? So it seems seems like we're dealing with a consequentialist decision here because the two types of formalists who already we started off saying would not be too interested in negotiating with terrorists in general, but here we'd say all the more so because first of all the as far as the as far as the policy formalist, so you'd think especially we certainly don't want to be the Chazek terrorism. And there is some debate about this because the question is, for example, has been noted that if Hamas is indeed totally destroyed by the end of this war, so maybe we're less worried about motivating behavior in the future, although one could question whether we're only worried about this group or worried about the whole existence of terrorism and the effectiveness of its strategies worldwide. So it would seem that the policy formalist would be very, very afraid of this deal. And it would seem like the values formalist would be most upset about this because in general to negotiate with terrorists would be to endorse evil. Here we find this to the most extreme degree possible. Here the events of Simchas Torah are the epitome of absolute depraved evil beyond anyone's imagination. So to negotiate with that, to the results of that, as if Ki'ilu, it's so hard to imagine, if Ki'ilu there was some kind of legitimate right to, as if you're in a store dealing with a merchant who has the right to be selling what he has. It's such a inversion of all decency. So the values formalist would presumably have the greatest objection to this. So it sounds like we're coming from a consequentialist perspective here. Although, consequentially, there's also what to worry about, because even in the short term, the number of things that can go wrong, we've already seen a little bit about that, but the number of ways in which there could be even very short-term negative consequences are so easily apparent that it becomes difficult to see it even from that perspective. So perhaps we could understand that actually it does flip back to values formalism and that this is a decision really driven by that more than by consequentialism because even though it looks like we're acting in the moment just to focus on what will help now, but 
even that we see is a highly complicated cheshben. So perhaps the motivation really actually is values formalism, but from the other direction, that it's not focusing on the fact that it's rewarding the terror, but it's focusing on the fact that there is an emphasis here that the Jewish people are displaying about their tremendous regard for the infinite value of one life. And perhaps even because of the fact that it's a somewhat irrational decision, so that actually strengthens this aspect of showing the Chaviva Sa'adam about the infinite value of one person. And together with also the sensitivity to the suffering of the individual and their family and of all of Jewish society, which has bonded in feeling the empathy and feeling the suffering of the hostages. So a sensitivity to that as a basic human instinct, but also just an awareness of the value of every individual, that this is a tremendous statement about that. And that essentially, while in war, you do have to be driven by consequentialist factors, as we said a few minutes ago. But they have to have at their core, it's a kind of synergy between formalism and and consequentialism because the consequentialist decisions all flow from the formalist principle that because every one life is infinitely valuable, so then it's worth going to war to save millions of lives because it's a million times infinite. So first we start with that premise that it's worth going to war for one person, it's worth everything in order to save one life. And then, within that belief, so then we necessarily have to make chesh bonus. Okay, how will we save the most lives? And what decisions will go that way? But it all comes from this premise that one life is infinitely valuable, and the Jewish people are displaying that. And especially right now, when it's against an enemy that comes from the polar opposite of that, complete, complete disregard for the value of their own lives, of anyone else's life, uh, complete nihilism and dismissal of any kind of Kedusha Sachaim. So it draws the battle lines in a very powerful way. And that itself may end up being its own battle strategy. And being able to display in a formalist way, perhaps, that our army and our people believe in the infinite value of life and the enemy is coming from the complete opposite perspective. So that itself, together with the notion of morale, which we've acknowledged and the role that that may play, but as far as expressing the positions of what the two sides are about, that itself plays a crucial role in terms of how this war is fought, and perhaps that's also a big part of what's being accomplished and what's being put forward here. So it's not our place to judge or to assess, but we can issue a tefillah that the attitude of reverence for life that the Jewish people have displayed throughout their history, and that is conveyed at the beginning of this parsha when Yaakov is equally worried about losing his own life as he is about taking the life of anyone else. So that sensitivity which surrounds this core appreciation for the value of life and everything that comes with it, that should be a zchus, that should bring our nation to victory, and that should bring peace to the whole world. And through that we should be zolcha to Yeshua's and to brachos and to genuine shalom. I wish everyone a peaceful night and uh, good Shabbos and uh, Bez Hashem. Uh, we should be able to discuss happier topics in the near future.